here at New City as we finish out our second year of just existence as a church, as a church plant, and begin year three, um, we continue to be amazed by the ways that God is growing His kingdom here in this city and around the world. Uh, in particular, we give praise to God that He has allowed us to relaunch our city groups, uh, seven new city groups that have just begun meeting in homes in the last several weeks. Uh, we give praise for Davidson, thankful for Davidson as a new leader within our church to help continue to grow and disciple our church. Um, we give thanks to God for this new facility and a space to serve Him and grow His kingdom. And we give thanks to Him that we can expand church planting, both here in this state and again around the world. Um, it is with that in mind that we begin a brand new series here this morning, one that will take us from now to the beginning of next summer, most likely. I have entitled this new series, The Power to Change the World. The Power to Change the World. And I chose this particular series and topic for us this year because it feels, as we just considered in looking to the Lord, that there is bad news everywhere. There is much hopelessness. There is much loneliness. There is much to be scary, scared about. There is corruption in many places, and it's hard to know what's true anymore. And I think many of us in this world, and even in this room as believers, we're not sure what to do about it. We're not sure who or what to look to to resolve those problems. And so what I want us to do is go to the Scripture. I want us to go to King Jesus, and what we're going to do in this series is walk in the shoes of the very first generation of believers who saw Jesus on earth and listened to Him teach, saw Him perform miracles, saw Him die on the cross, and saw Him rise from the dead and see how they lived their lives and put their hope in Jesus. And not only are we going to see it through their eyes, we're going to see it through the thousands of other believers who came from those initial first witnesses. They themselves did not see Jesus bodily walk. But when they heard the good news of the gospel, they gave their lives to Jesus. They were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they too experienced change in their own lives and around the world. Our series is going to take us verse by verse through the New Testament book of Acts. If you have your Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to pull it out and go to the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, and then Acts. The book of Acts, as you turn there, was written in 62 AD, very soon after Jesus' earthly life, death, and resurrection. It's written by a guy named Luke. That name should sound familiar because Luke is the same Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke. It was basically a two-part series for him. The book Acts is actually a short for its full title, Acts of the Apostles. The titles that we give to the books uh, are not inspired. The chapters and verses of Scripture are inspired. So if I was going to improve the title of Acts, Try this one on for size, and this will sort of guide us through the book of Acts. Here's my title. The Acts of God, sending the grace of Jesus flooding into the world by His Holy Spirit's power in and through ordinary believers like you and me who proclaim the good news. Sound like a good title? Have it memorized by next week. Good news, gospel. You will hear me say all the time the word gospel. I want you to know, if you don't, that the word gospel is translated into English, good news. 
It comes from a Greek word that shows up all over the New Testament. In Greek, it is the word euangelizo, euangelizo. In English, it is the word evangelism, to share the good news. I have good news, and I want to share the good news that the Savior of the world, Jesus, has come. The word, the Greek word, euangelizo, shows up more times in the book of Acts than anywhere else in the New Testament. And so it is a critical, foundational part of seeing what God is going to unfold in the book. We will also see the Holy Spirit at work doing miraculous things, doing powerful things, most of all regenerating and awakening dead hearts to life that will respond to the salvation that was accomplished on a cross by Jesus according to the good and loving plan of redemption of God the Father. And we will see, we will see people experience new life in Christ. And we will see the family of God continue to grow and grow as more people see and hear and experience the good news of the gospel and they are drawn into that same community of faith. And you and I are invited to join into that same continuing story. We are a part of the New Testament. And by God's grace alone, we get to be a part of his mission. One that is so much bigger than our church one that is so much bigger than any one of us, one that is so much bigger than this city, this country, that is a worldwide plan of redemption. And it will be one that advances not based on our charisma, not based on our speaking ability, our personality, anything within us, but purely based on the power of God manifested through the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And what you're going to see, and I hope this encourages you as we walk page by page through Acts, is that despite problems, God is good. Despite persecution, despite riots, despite disbelief, despite false religions, despite a wicked government, despite a broken society, despite language barriers and ethnic barriers and wealth and power barriers, then and now... The power to change the world is in one man, a man who is God. His name is Jesus. So let's go to the scripture now. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. And this morning we're looking at verses 1 through 11, an incredibly powerful passage here. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Let's take a minute. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bless your name for your word. Lord, we submit ourselves to the power and the greatness of your word. We are thankful that in it is contained your plan, your goodness, your life, your love, and the hope of salvation. God, draw us to you in a powerful way this morning. Use us, we pray, for your glory that others might know your grace, your love, and your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Four ways this morning from this passage, four ways that the Lord Jesus himself invites you into his Father's mission by the power of the Holy Spirit. Four ways. Number one, as the mission's participants. Number one, as the mission's participants. We see this in particular in the first three verses and also in verse 8. Acts 1.8 is not only the keystone of understanding this little passage or chapter 1. Acts 1.8 is really the way that we understand the entire book of Acts. So looking back again for one moment at Acts 1.8, it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We participate in God's mission by being His witnesses. Stop and think about it for a second. These are the last words of Jesus on the earth before He leaves. Last sentence right there. You will be my witnesses. So is that a prophecy on God's part or is that a command? Yes. Both. Prophecy, command, yes. Who is to participate Oh, the spiritual elites, Peter, Paul. No, all believers are invited to participate in witness. What is witness? Well, dictionary says this, witness, one who establishes facts objectively through verifiable observation. What is the fact? Jesus is God. How has it been observed? Oh, we saw him do a thing. What thing? Oh, we'll talk about it. 39 times in the book of Acts, believers are called to witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. Here's one of my favorite. This is Peter. Peter is always audacious, obnoxious, over the line. Peter says while preaching in Acts chapter 3, verse 15, imagine this is a room or a neighborhood full of Jews listening, and he says this, you killed the author of life. Okay, cool. But God raised him from the dead. We are eyewitnesses. I saw all that. I saw it. I was a a witness to this. We are, with Peter, witnesses to the good news of the gospel, and we get to be evangelists. And that is the good news, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth and took on human flesh and lived as a man, lived the perfect life with not a single sin. How did he do that? He's God. He's different. 
And then he willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for sins that he didn't commit, that you and I committed. And in paying for that sin, our debt to a holy and righteous God has been paid so that anyone who believes in him can have salvation and eternal life. Acts chapter 2 and Romans chapter chapter 10 say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is our, our witness. As we consider this, what we see too is that our witness is a reflection of a, a personal change that God has wrought in us and is continuing to do. So when we participate in evangelism, we are sharing with others what, what God is doing in us, how God is changing us as well. In other words, what you preach is what you practice And you're not coming to people telling them what they need. I'm not offering you simply what you need. I'm telling you this is what I have needed. I have needed God's grace and mercy, and it is changing my life. It works for me. And out of that experience of God's grace, not me, not my abilities, Jesus. And we get to share that, what God is doing in us, the personal change he's working in us, we are sharing that with others. Our witness also comes at a personal cost. Our witness comes at a personal cost, but in light of a much greater reward. Uh, As some of you are well aware, the college football season began this weekend. The NFL is coming soon after. At a football game, if you've ever been to one, but this sort of makes sense either way, at a football game, there are fundamentally two types of people. One is a participant. They are in the game. They are in there fighting. And if they win, if they're a success, they have the glory of a uniform that is covered in dirt, covered in blood, covered in sweat, because they participated in that victory. The other category would be spectator. Spectator sits in the stands, comfortable, most likely scrolling on their phone, unengaged, and has little to no effect on the outcome of the activity. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses, not my spectators. Understand that both witnesses and spectators, they both saw the same thing. But Jesus is not calling us to be a spectator. He is calling us to be a participant in the game to witness I think it's incredibly important for us to understand at this given moment, there are believers who are in Afghanistan right now who chose to stay. It is not that they could not get out. It is that they would not get out. Why? They understand that they may very well die, but they want to stay through all the fear and the challenge that is obviously involved because they want people there who don't know Jesus to understand that Jesus died to save them. And so they stay. They are participating, even at the cost of their life. The book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. He, Jesus, said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Take up your cross daily. That is not an invitation to vacation. It is an invitation to death, 
to self. And it is an invitation to a life well-lived and an eternal life and an eternal reward, not one that we earn, one that we are gifted. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, though, picks up on this same idea. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And we're told here very clearly in the first three verses that our witness is proved by his resurrection life. What was that thing that Jesus did? Oh, he rose from the dead. If you're familiar with that reality, don't gloss over it. If that is shocking to you, it should be. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven are historical and far more importantly, biblical facts. And Luke here claims that there is proof. Remember that the best lies that they could come up with after 2,000 years, they haven't come up with any better lies, are one, the disciples stole his body, and two, that Jesus faked his own death. It's been 2,000 years. You know what we're missing? Jesus' body. It's not there. Why? He's still using it. He's going to come back with it. He's in heaven with it right now, and he will come back on a day of his choosing. Why would every disciple suffer persecution unto death? Why not just say, you know, I was lying, I made it up. Pressure's off. Because they saw they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so the idea of being tortured and killed for their faith was meaningless because they saw the truth and there was proof. You know, the Bible records 10 distinct times that Jesus appears alive to believers in those 40 days after the resurrection and before his ascension. What's the explanation? The explanation is the man who promised these things, Jesus, is God. And since the resurrection is true, he is God, and we participate in his mission by witnessing to his good news. Amen? Number two, the mission's power. We have the mission's participants now, the mission's power. And we see this particularly in verses four and five, and then again in verse eight. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He says, wait He says, wait for the promise from your father. Wait. Why wait? Let's go, Jesus. Why wait? Wait because it's not your power. You do not have it within yourself. Wait for God's power. John 15, 5, Jesus says, remain in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What a comfort. What a promise the power to change the world, it's not up to me because I cannot do it. The power to change the world is in God and he will pour it out on this world and he will even choose to use us. So trust God the Father and wait. Next week's sermon, as we look at verse 12 through the end of chapter one, we're gonna see a profound story immediately where the disciples and the believers have to sit and wait on God. 
and they learn to trust him during confusing times. That will be a lesson for us as well. But for the moment, the believers will wait 10 short days from the day of Pentecost, for the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all believers to do God's mission. Again, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The Greek word here is dynamis. Dynamis. You will receive dynamis. The Greek word here entered into English when a Swedish chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel discovered a power stronger than anything the world had ever known that would soon after be named dynamite. Dynamite. Not power you possess yourself, but an explosive, life-changing power manifested by the Holy Spirit, destroying the power of sin and death and raising people to life by the word and power of Jesus. And so as we'll look in a few weeks when we come to this story, at the moment of Pentecost, the Bible says that the doors and the windows of the room where the believers were gathered were shut, and yet there was a wind. God is there. There is a wind inside of a room with the windows and the doors shut. And then it says that flames or tongues of fire came to rest on the heads of all the believers gathered in that room. Power. And by the Holy Spirit's power, as we move from Acts 1 to 2 and 3 and beyond, we see His power manifested. Acts chapter 2, people begin to speak other real languages and immediately begin preaching the gospel and people believe and are saved. The lame are healed miraculously. 3,000, the Bible says, are saved when they hear the gospel in their own language. Acts chapter 3. Philip is moved by the Spirit from city to city to evangelize in Acts chapter 8. A murderer named Saul is knocked off of his donkey by the voice of Jesus in Acts chapter 9, and he is converted to faith. Peter is given a vision where God the Father tells him, all Gentiles, that's you and me, the whole world is going to be included in this plan of salvation. That's Acts 10. And Peter and then Paul and Silas are broken miraculously out of prison. Chains broken. Doors ripped open by a Holy Spirit earthquake that rips them open and sets them free in Acts chapter 12 and 16. Power. And what are the believers doing in every single one of those situations? What is the result of God's power? Witness. It's witness. It's evangelism. It's preaching or proclaiming the good news, thereby people coming to saving faith. Listen, Jesus didn't say the results of my power will be every believer is going to speak in an unknown tongue or every believer is going to be able to perform miracles or every believer is going to be able to heal people's physical illnesses. It's not what he said. And to demand that of any believer then or now is unbiblical. What Jesus says here in 1.8 is when you receive power, the result will be you will be my witnesses when you receive power. The miracles, the tongues, the healings, they all advance the gospel, the message, the witness. Jesus does incredible miracles. He heals people throughout his earthly life and ministry. Now the apostles will be empowered to heal and do miracles, but the focus of all of it is on Jesus, who comes to save spiritually dead sinners and bring them to eternal 
life. That's the message. And the Holy Spirit comes on normal, regular, everyday believers on you and on me. And we become fountains of His power. Who are the most well-known church planters or evangelists in the New Testament? Peter, another fisherman with an anger problem. Paul, a murderer of Christians. And God used them. They are below average. The two biggest churches that develop in that first generation is the church in Rome and the church in Antioch. Who planted those churches? We have no idea. We just know that when Paul shows up in Rome to share the good news of the gospel, there's already a church there. It's you and me. It's everyday believers who are faithfully serving because they are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to witness to the good news. And the same Holy Spirit power that regenerated our dead hearts empowers our faith is the same Holy Spirit who empowers our witness today. Number three, the mission's proportions. The mission's proportions. We see this in verses six and seven. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus' mission is bigger than our little tiny narrow ideas. The disciples learned a whole lot from Jesus. In that 40 days, you can imagine the conversations that Jesus is having with his disciples as they're getting to ask questions uh, between that, that 40 days between resurrection and ascension. This is the last conversation. And the last thing that the disciples choose to ask is about God's kingdom. And they clearly still don't get it. They are still thinking this, the rule and the reign of God. God's kingdom is going to be established, listen, by a political or an earthly power. Listen to their question. The Jews are still waiting for a Messiah who would end the reign of a cruel, tyrannical government in Rome and establish an earthly government like the good old days back when King David ruled. Listen to John Stott in his commentary from the message of Acts. He says this, listening to their question, he says, the verb restore shows that they were expecting a political and a territorial kingdom. The noun Israel, that they were expecting a national kingdom. And the adverbial clause at this time, that they were expecting its immediate establishment. But the proportions of Jesus' kingdom are far too big for our little earthly kingdoms. You can't change the world that way. And be encouraged here for a second. If the disciples who saw the rejection of Jesus and his bloody crucifixion and saw Jesus' wondrous empty tomb, saw him alive, if they are still asking Jesus if the master plan for Jesus is for him to get elected and change some laws, then it should not surprise us that believers today think that a Republican or a Democrat is going to save the world. They're not going to. They can't. They cannot. They cannot solve human depravity. Social change, moral change, cannot be solved by earthly leaders nor by good laws. 
Earthly kingdoms cannot change the human condition because they cannot change the human heart. What we need is spiritual change. Social change, moral change, any change comes out of hearts changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. Listen to the the Bible, if you don't believe me. Listen to Romans chapter 8. Listen to how Jesus couches this, the Apostle Paul speaking of Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You want law? Great. Law means that we are all guilty. Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. In the United States, we passed prohibition. It's going to stop drinking. It's going to stop drunkenness. It's going to stop all the terrible things that happen when people get drunk. Did it work? What happened when we passed the law? People drank more. It cannot. Throughout the New Testament, the theme of the law cannot do it is the reality that we see. And so what is Jesus' answer to the apostle's specific question here? In John 18, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. But now here in Acts, he says this, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Your ideas are too small. It's not a, it's not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a Jewish kingdom. It's an every tribe, tongue, and nation kingdom. It's not a right now kingdom. It's an eternal, heavenly, for all time kingdom. Salvation. And hope is offered to everyone, everywhere, for all time, every race, every income level, every age, every political party. There's going to be Republicans and Democrats in heaven. Not because of their party affiliation. We are invited into Jesus' mission to reach the whole world with the gospel, even the people that you don't like. Understand as well that the first generation of Christians, as we walk in their shoes, they took this mission so seriously that by the Holy Spirit's power, the gospel began to spread to most of the known world in their lifetime. You understand how radical this is, that they're sitting in one little room in Jerusalem and Jesus is saying, I want this to go worldwide. If I make a social media post, I can't even get it to go around the block. Jesus is saying it's going worldwide. In your lifetime, the work will begin. So in Acts 1.15, here's the evidence. There are 120 all-Jewish believers on the planet. And then they came up with a really good plan. No, 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 no. And then the Holy Spirit enters. Here's the story. Acts chapter 1 through 7, the mission expands throughout Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 through 12, the mission expands throughout Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 13 through 28, the mission goes all over the earth. And you and I are Acts 29 and 30 and 31 and beyond. By the Holy Spirit's power, we are invited into Jesus' mission, whose proportions are the whole world. 
But let me end with a very simple promise. Number four, the mission's promise. And we see this explicitly in verses 9 through 11 that end this passage. Jesus ascends into heaven. Jesus is lifted up out of their sight. He shows once again that he's God. He's king. He's in authority. Acts chapter 2 verse 32 says that at that moment, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God and is pouring out his Holy Spirit on his people. The phase of his work on earth is ending and the phase of his work in heaven is beginning. And these two angels say to the disciples gathered there in awe of what they've just seen, he's coming back. So get going. Get going. For a church on mission, the message is, let's go. We have everything that we need. We have a sure promise. He's going to come back to take us home. When? I don't know. I don't need the details. What I need to know is God is going to complete his mission. And he's promising that in this very moment. And by the way, I'll be with you always. Always. To the very end of the age. Amen.